Section 2 of Anthropology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Anthropology Book 1 by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Adolf Ernst Kroger. 3. Concerning the Voluntary Consciousness of Our Representations. The endeavor to become conscious of our representations is either an act of attention or of abstraction, and the latter is not merely an abstaining from attending or neglecting to attend, for that would be distraction, but a real act of our cognizing faculty, a representation of which I am conscious that I keep it removed and apart from other representations in my consciousness. Hence we do not say, to abstract something, to keep something apart, but to abstract from something, that is, from some determination of an object of my representation, whereby it receives the general character of a conception, and can thus be taken hold of by the understanding. To be able to abstract from a representation, even when it impresses itself upon us through the senses, is a far higher faculty than to pay attention for to have the condition of our representations under our control, animus sui compus, shows freedom of the thinking faculty and proves the self-rule of our mind. The power of abstraction is therefore in this regard much more difficult and almost more important than the power of attention where sensuous representations are concerned. Many men are unhappy because they cannot abstract. The wooer might contract a good marriage if he could only overlook a wart in the face of his sweetheart, or a missing tooth in her mouth. But it is a particularly naughty feature of our power of attention to fasten itself, even involuntarily, upon the very defects of others, to direct one's eye upon a missing button on the coat right opposite to one's eye, or upon that missing tooth, or upon an habitual defect of speech and thus to confuse the other person, while at the same time, to be sure, spoiling one's own conversational amusement. If the main points are good, it is not only fair, but also prudent to overlook the bad points of other people, and even those of our own circumstances. But this faculty of abstraction is a power of the mind which can be acquired only by practice. 4. Concerning Self-Observation To remark anima de vertere is not quite to observe observare oneself the latter is a methodical gathering together of the observations that furnish the material for the diary of self-observator and are likely to lead to fantastic eccentricity and to insanity self-attention in our intercourse with others is unquestionably necessary but it must not be observable for in that case it either embarrasses or makes affected. The opposite of both is unconstrainedness, an air de gage, a self-confidence, that others will not judge badly of one's behavior. A man who acts as if he were standing before a looking-glass, and noticing whether his manners became him or not, or who speaks as if he only, and not others, were listening to himself, is a sort of actor. He wants to represent, and hence artificially produce a semblance of his person, and hereby, if his intention is perceived, loses in the opinion of others, because he is suspected of attempting to deceive. 
Frankness of manner in outward appearance, which does not occasion any such suspicion, is called natural behavior, though it does not on that account exclude all fine art and taste, and pleases by the mere truthfulness of its expression. But when open-heartedness is evidently the result of simplicity, that is, of the absence of all habitual dissimulation, it is called naiveness. This frank manner of expression in a girl already approaching puberty, or in a countryman ignorant of city manners, produces by its innocence and simplicity, that is, by ignorance of the art of dissembling, a cheerful laughter on the part of those who are already versed and practiced in the art. It is not a laughter of contempt, for in our heart we honor purity and sincerity, but a good-natured, kind laughter at the inexperience in the evil, although founded in our corrupt human nature, art of dissembling, which, however, we ought rather to sigh over than laugh at when we compare it with the idea of a still uncorrupted nature. Footnote. In regard to which one might parody the well-known verse of Perseus as follows, Naturum videant ingemiscant que relicto. End of footnote. It is a momentary cheerfulness, as of a cloudy sky, which suddenly opens at one spot to let the sunbeam pass through, but straightway closes again in order not to hurt the tender mole's eye of egotism. But so far as the real purpose of this paragraph is concerned, namely the above warning not to indulge at all in spying oat, and to trace, as it were, a studied internal history of the involuntary course of our thoughts and feelings, that warning is given because such an indulgence is the straight road towards mental confusion concerning pretended higher inspirations and forces that influence us, who knows from whence, without our cooperation, and towards a lumatism or terrorism, for without perceiving it we thus make supposed discoveries of ideas which we have ourselves put into our head, just as has happened to a Berignon with flattering, and to Pascal with terrifying ideas. Even such an otherwise excellent mind as Albrecht Haller fell into this condition, and in the course of a long conducted, often also interrupting the arium of the state of his soul, got finally so far that he asked a celebrated theologian, his former academic colleague, Dr. Less, whether he might not find comfort for his anxious soul in the extensive treasure of Dr. Less's theological knowledge. To observe the various acts of the power of representation in myself, when I myself call them forth, is well worth the study, and is especially necessary and useful for logic and metaphysics. But to try to watch them as they also enter the mind uncalled, which is done through the play of the unintentionally fancying imagination, is a reversion of the natural order in our faculty of cognition, because the principles of thinking do not then precede, as they ought to, but follow those notions, and is either already a disease of the mind, notionalness, or leads to it, and to the lunatic asylum. Anyone who has much to say about his inner experiences, about grace or temptation, etc., may as well land in Antiquara beforehand when entering upon his voyage of discovery of his own self. For it is not with those inner as with our external experiences of objects, of space, 
wherein objects appear by the side of each other and as permanently fixed. The inner sense sees the relations of its determinations only in time and hence as flowing, and in that case no permanence of observation takes place, which nevertheless is essential for experience. Footnote. When we represent to ourselves consciously and the internal act, spontaneity, through which a conception or a thought becomes possible, and the reflection of them, that is, the receptivity, whereby a perception or empirical intuition becomes possible, then our self-consciousness can be divided into a consciousness of reflection and of apprehension. The former is a consciousness of the understanding, the latter is the inner sense. The former is the pure, the latter the empirical apperception, for which reason the former is falsely called the inner sense. In psychology, we investigate ourselves according to the representations of our inner sense, but in logic, we investigate ourselves according to the requirements of our intellectual consciousness. Now here the ego seems to us to be double, which would be contradictory. It appears to us, firstly, as the ego as the subject of thinking, in logic, which signifies pure apperception, the merely reflecting ego of which nothing further can be said, but which is merely a simple idea, and, secondly, as the ego as the object of perception, and hence of the inner sense, which involves a manifoldness of determinations that render possible an inner experience. The question whether, in consideration of the various inner conditions of his mind, his memory, or his adopted principles, man can still say, although conscious of those things, that he is one and the same individual in regard to his soul, is an absurd question, since he can become conscious of those changes only by representing himself as one and the same subject in those various conditions. And since the ego of man, although dual, to be sure, in regard to its form, the manner of its representation, is not so in regard to its matter or its content. End of footnote. 5. Concerning the representations which we have without being conscious of them. To have representations, and yet not to be conscious of them, seems to involve a contradiction. For how can we know that we have them if we are not conscious of them? This objection was raised already by Locke, who on that account rejected the existence of such sort of representations. But then we may be immediately conscious of having a representation without being immediately conscious of it. Such representations are then called dim. The other things, clear. And if their clearness extends even to the representations of parts and their connections, distinct or perspicuous, representations whether of thinking or of contemplation. For instance, if on a meadow I am conscious of seeing a person, although I am not conscious of seeing his nose, eyes, mouth, etc., I in point of fact merely conclude that thing is a man. Since if I were to deny that I had the representation of the whole in my mind, because I was not conscious of beholding those parts of the head and other parts of the person, I could also not say that I beheld a man, since the whole representation of the head or the man is composed of those parts. 
it may fill us with admiration of our own nature that the field of those sensuous perceptions and feelings in us of which we are not conscious although we can unquestionably conclude that we have them that is of the dim representations in the mind of man and equally so in that of animals should be unmeasurable whilst on the contrary our clear representations have only very few points open to consciousness and that hence the great chart of our mind as it were should have only very few illuminated points for a higher power might only say let there be light and without any other assistance as for instance that of a thoroughly read man with all his knowledge half a world would lie open to our view whatever the eye discovers through the telescope the moon for instance or through the microscope say in the infusoria is seen by our naked eye for those optical aids do not bring more rays and hence pictures created by them into our eye than would have imaged themselves upon our retina without those artificial helps but they merely expand them further in order to bring them into our consciousness the same can be said of the feelings of our sense of hearing when a musician for instance plays with ten fingers and two feet a fantasia upon an organ mayhap even speaking with another person at the same time and when thus in a moment a number of perceptions are awakened in the soul each of which moreover requires a special judgment upon its appropriateness in its selection since a single inharmonious stroke of the finger would be immediately perceived as a discord whilst after all the whole turns out so that the impromptu playing musician wishes often that many a happily executed fantasia of his which he does not expect ever to be able to write down as good had been preserved in notes thus the field of dim representations is the largest in man but since they show us man only in his passive condition as a play of his feelings the theory of them belongs rather to physiological than to pragmatical anthropology with which alone we have to do here footnote physiological anthropology investigates what nature makes out of man pragmatical anthropology deals with what man as a free being makes out of himself End of footnote. for we often play with dim representations and feel an interest in placing favorite or disagreeable objects in a shade before our imagination but still more frequently we are ourselves a play of dim representations and our understanding is powerless to save itself from the absurdities in which their influence places it although it will recognize them as deceptions this is the case for instance with sexual love in so far as it intends not so much the love as the enjoyment of its object how much wit has been wasted forever and a day to throw a thin veil over what is certainly liked but still puts man in the light of such close relationship with the lower animals that it excites shame and requires language in fine society not to speak openly though sufficiently transparent to excite a smile imagination likes to walk in the dark here and it always requires more than common art to avoid cynicism and yet not to lapse into a ridiculous purism on the other hand however we are often enough the play of dim representations that will not vanish even though the understanding illuminates them it is often an important matter for a dying person 
to order his grave to be dug in his garden or under a shady tree in the field or in dry ground although in the former case he has no beautiful prospect to hope for and in the latter not the least cause to fear catching a cold from dampness the proverb the dress makes the man applies also in a certain degree to intelligent people it is true that the russian proverb says we receive a guest according to his dress but accompany him when he leaves according to his intelligence but intelligence can after all not prevent the vague impression of a certain importance which surrounds a well-dressed person and can at the uttermost correct a previous judgment studied darkness is often used even with the success desired in order to pass current for profundity and thoroughness just as objects seen in the dark or through a fog are always seen larger than they are footnote whereas in the light of day that which is brighter than surrounding objects seems also to be larger white stockings for instance make the ankles appear larger than black ones a fire in the night on a high mountain appears to be larger than it is when you measure it perhaps this may also explain the apparent size of the moon and also the apparently greater distance of stars from each other close to the horizon for in both cases shining objects that are seen through a more dimmed strata of air close to the horizon appear to be high in the sky and that which is dark is also judged to be smaller by the surrounding light hence in target shooting a black target with a white circle in the midst would be more favorable to hitting the mark than the reverse End footnote. the scotason make it dark is the motto of all mystics in order to allure treasure seekers of wisdom by artificial darkness as a general rule however a certain degree of the mysterious in writings is not unwelcome to the reader because it makes him feel his own sharp-sightedness to solve the dark into clear conceptions end of section two